You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hi, I'm Pete Betke. I'm the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center and also in the Department of Economics here at George Mason University. Uh, today I'm speaking with Mario Rizzo of New York University. Uh, today is February 27th, 2016. Hello, Mario. Hi, how are you, Pete? Uh, Mario, to, to get things started, I, I would like you to talk a little bit about the new initiatives that you're doing at NYU with respect to both the Classical Liberal Institute at the law school as well as the Austrian Economics Program in the Economics Department. All right, let me start with the uh, Classical Liberal Institute. Um, <clears throat> for um, quite a number of years, I was teaching a course, uh, in a seminar in classical liberalism at the law school, uh, but it was just a basically... Um, isolated uh, kind of thing. Um, but then um, what also happened um, about 10, 12 years ago uh, is that the students at the law school, quite on their own, without any consultation or help from me, uh, established a journal called the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. Uh, it's a student-organized uh, journal, as most uh, law journals are. Uh, and the law school uh, subsidizes its uh, publication. And so then for a number of years, we had the, uh, the journal and we had my course. Uh, and then Richard Epstein came uh, for a number of years as a visiting uh, professor uh, at the law school. Uh, and then uh, a transition occurred when Richard uh, accepted a, uh, a full-time position at the law school, uh, basically retiring more or less from his Chicago uh, position. Um, <clears throat> and so at that point, I suggested to Richard, hey, shouldn't we start a program of some sort? And we have the elements here uh, of a program, and he, he thought it was a good idea. And so uh, largely because of his initiative, uh, he got a rather large grant from an anonymous donor um, and we established uh, the Classical Liberal Institute, uh, and we've been in existence now for just really about three years. Um, and the purpose of the Institute is to promote classical liberalism in the legal context, uh, law school context, uh, starting with NYU, and now we have this plan or idea of moving out beyond NYU to establish cooperation, cooperative ventures with uh, professors and uh, institutes at other places and other universities. And that's an important part of our, of our mission. And so that's basically law-oriented, although, as everyone knows, Richard's own research and my own as well have uh, a lot of economic content. So when we say it's basically a law institute, uh, it's really a law and economics institute, uh, practically speaking. Okay, so that's the 
basic idea of the classical uh, liberal institute. Uh, before I go on to the Austrian program, uh, if you have any other questions. Well, about, yeah, I, yeah, I was yeah. wondering if uh, maybe you could tell uh, our listeners a little bit about some of the conferences. I know you ran one on the Magna Carta recently. You have uh, some coming up uh, having to do with uh, tech entrepreneurs. Uh, they seem very, very fascinating conferences that you're running um, and the publications that come out of that and that as a strategy of what you're uh, trying to get your uh, spread your ideas or whatnot. Yeah, we've had uh, we had a conference. I guess our uh, one of the first major, if not the first major conference, uh, was one on the quote the ends of capitalism, um, which probably wasn't the best title in the world, but it was a general, very general conference on different aspects of of capitalism, income inequality, the moral foundations. Uh, externalities, a whole uh, swathe of issues. Um, and uh, so, so, but basically our decisions about what conferences to run, uh, as Richard says, are uh, opportunistic uh, in, in the good sense of the word. Uh, if there's an issue which we see is uh, gathering some steam and interest uh, in the sort of legal academy, uh, um, or within the uh, law profession more generally, uh, we'll pounce on it. Uh, and uh, But it's also uh, determined by the interests of the people uh, within our institute or associated with our institute, uh, their interests and what they're interested in, what they would like to organize. The Magna Carta Conference uh, was an interesting um, uh, way that that got uh, uh, started. Uh, Richard uh, and I and uh, Shruti Rajgopalan uh, and some others were out for uh, lunch, I guess, one day. And Shruti mentioned that uh, the um, 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta was uh, was coming up. Uh, so Richard looked at me and I looked at him and I said, well, you know, why don't we run a conference on the Magna Carta? <laughs> and Shruti said, you know, that's a good idea. So Richard says to Shruti, well, why don't you put it together, put, put, put a proposal together? And that was it. She put a proposal together, and we had the conference. Uh, and uh, most of our uh, conferences come about that way. With Leah on tech entrepreneurship, we asked Leah, do you want to run a conference? She says, yeah, I want to run a conference. What would you like to run it on? She says, uh, well, tech entrepreneurship. So we put up something on tech entrepreneurship. She's also interested in federalism or, or uh, decentralized, uh, polycentric uh, uh, governance. So she said, okay, put a proposal together on that, and we're going to have one on that uh, next uh, next year. So it's, it's very informal in that sense. We build on the interests of our people, and we find that that's really the best way to go, rather than coming top, you know, top down with an idea. Oh, we need to have a conference on X. Who are we going to find to run it? We said, "What do you want to do?" And we go ahead. Now you've been at NYU for a, a fair number of years now, and it's uh, you've been, done uh, your career both in legal scholarship as well as in economics. Um, there's unique challenges, I imagine, in both of those disciplines. So before we talk about the Austrian economics program. Do you have anything to say about the differences in the way that you've interacted when you've been in law environments, like when you were at Yale, you know, for the year or in now in NYU law school and the way that you interact with your colleagues in economics, or is it the same challenges across the board? 
No, uh, not the same challenges. I think very different. Uh, I feel in the law context, uh, by, by that I mean law and economics, I include ethics and economics, which I've been teaching and done some work on, and now with uh, sort of the behavioral law and economics and paternalism, that side of things, I find that in the law school context, there is much more um, flexibility and uh, tolerance for different approaches. Um, the economics context is far more rigid. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's the case in the economics context that if you are not saying something within the general pers- uh, framework that most sort of high-powered economists want to work, in, uh, it's not something which people view as very interesting. Uh, the law context is more uh, tolerant of diverse methodologies. And so I find the law context more amenable to my predilection, predilections and, you know, uh, more enjoyable to interact with people in that context. Okay. Um, so you have been involved with Austrian economics since uh, the 1970s or earlier, I think, as a student starting um, and uh, seen the whole movement from the sort of, you know, uh, resurgence to then trying to develop professional inroads and established journals, book series, uh, graduate program, I should mention before, this, which was the pinnacle of, of uh, graduate education in Austrian economics. Um and really sort of we wouldn't have had the Austrian movement today had not been for the establishment of the program at NYU. Um, and so maybe you could talk to that and then the challenges that you still see in the way you're building the program today. Okay. Um, maybe I should just start out by saying that, you know, my interest in Austrian economics goes back to the beginnings of my interest in economics itself. Uh, I remember the first book I read on economics was Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. And if you note, in, in the, uh, toward the back of the book, there's a bibliography of some sort, and most of the works that he gives are Austrian works. So I came to economics thinking that Austrian economics was the, <laughs> the was mainstream, <laughs> and all the other things were sort of like deviations. Um, and uh, that came re- very, very early. I mean, I, I read Hazlitt's book, I think, maybe in my first year of high school or between uh, eighth grade and, and, and first year of high school. Uh, so that was very, very early. And I continue to be interested in economics in, in high school. Um, and uh, so, but all the time, thinking in sort of Austrian terms. Then it became obvious that Austrian economics wasn't the main stream. And when I went to college, I understood that and I learned, you know, the regular stuff. There was a very dominant uh, strain of uh, Keynesianism uh, running uh, around in the in the 60s uh, and when I was in college. So, I mean, you know, it was even before the monetarist revolution. So Keynes was the thing in macro. And I, for the life of me, I could never understand uh, Keynes in that way. Uh, and uh, so anyway, I studied it in, in college and, um, and then made a decision about going to graduate school. 
based on the fact that if I wasn't going to get Austrian economics in graduate school, at least I could get an approach which was not Keynesian. And so I applied and decided to go to Chicago. Uh, but during college, Murray Rothbard was a big influence um, because he would, at the time, his circle was m rather smaller than it later became. And he was very um, nurturing in the sense that, you know, if I was interested in, in working on a particular project or whatever, I could ask him for references and he would provide them and uh, he'd provide feedback on ideas I had. And uh, so he was very important in, in, in that respect uh, while, I was in, while I was in college. And Lou Spadaro, who later became the uh, president of the Institute for Humane Studies, was also a professor at uh, at Fordham and was very influential in in helping me pursue my Austrian in, uh, interests. Okay, was, uh, was uh, Father Sadowski at oh, yes. Fordham? Oh uh, yes, I met. Uh, in fact, I met everybody, and I kind of have to say, underline that through Father Sadowski, who was a Jesuit priest who was teaching uh, philosophy uh, at Fordham. Uh, I had a group of friends who were interested in libertarianism. We were handing out some pamphlet about libertarianism, and it attracted the attention of uh, Jim Sadowski and Jerry O'Driscoll, who was a friend of Jim Sadowski's at Fordham. Uh, so they made contact with us, and uh, that's how I, I met Murray Rothbard through Jim Sadowski, how I met... Jerry O'Driscoll through Jim Sadowski, and uh, so yeah. everything exploded from <laughs> from Jim Sadowski, uh, who was a rather uh, uh, unusual Jesuit to to be both a libertarian anarchist and an Austrian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know. yeah, so you you then went to University of Chicago and and uh, yeah, you did law and economics uh, there. Uh, Ultimately, maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe, well, talk about your experiences at Chicago and. Well, what your original interests were, how they evolved. and Yeah, and I, I don't know that I had strong original interests when I went there in the sense that I knew exactly what was going to, I think, what I was going to do. I think on the application form I, to, to the department, I said my two, inter, two main interests were monetary theory and welfare economics. Uh, I think I put the welfare economics down because of the normative aspects of welfare economics and that kind of captured my sort of philosophical interest but that was the way to say it in 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 terms of recognizable fields right. so welfare economics so i didn't study either when i was there uh, either welfare economics or monetary theory particularly i mean i took the course with friedman uh at first, I, I found it quite uh, fairly difficult. It was a it was a big change from uh, undergraduate education, in the sense that, uh, for the first time, I felt that what I was being tested on and what I had to do was not so much to to reproduce theories, but actually to apply theories to concrete circumstances. And there's a big difference between at least my undergraduate education where, you know, a, a typical question would be describe the liquidity trap and what are the arguments for and against and et cetera, et cetera, to actually taking some theory and applying it and coming up with an answer in a concrete circumstance. Um, but ultimately, I, I found the, the approach very congenial. I, I remember mainly in the micro area, 
uh, price theory, as it was called at Chicago in those days, uh, was uh, very much, uh, if you look at the old uh, qualifying examinations, uh, the so-called core in, uh, in price theory, they were all questions essentially that required uh, no mathematics to speak of, uh, maybe some geometry, but but basically a strong economics intuition. Uh, so, you know, they would ask you questions, well, why would you expect the higher quality um, products to be exported uh, and, and the lower quality products to stay in the domestic market or something like that, right? right? So you could answer it completely in words, and it was an application of, of, the, of theory. Uh, and there was no real emphasis on, for example, you know, the sort of axiomatic method and, and grinding, uh, gr- grounding your, your theories in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a strong sort of mathematical context. It was all very applied. And, and that continued. Uh, one of my fields was industrial organization. Um, and uh, Stigler was the sort of master of the field. Uh, and and, the, and I, I said to people kind of as a joke at the time, but it was, it was, it was much more than a joke. It was, it was a lot of truth. That one way I prepared for the qualifying exam in industrial organization was go into stores and, and notice what their pricing and, and, and practices were uh, and trying to explain them. You know, why does a department store put certain things on the top shelf instead of the bottom shelf? Uh, or why are they uh, pricing things uh, two for one rather than 50% off on each one of those? Yeah. Uh, and I tell you, that really helped <laughs> with preparing for the examination. Uh, so it was all very, very applied. So for me, price theory, I know you've written recently about uh, price theory, uh, Chicago price theory. Um, for me, what price theory meant more than anything else was that it was applied microeconomics, very applied and not worrying about the formal foundations of the theory but just basically say, you know, about negative slope demand curves or some very commonsensical things worked out in greater detail. In some sense, it was the, you know, I don't know, the, the common sense of political economy, right? Uh, but, you know, the common sense begins with common sense, but then you develop the common sense. And what do you do with the common sense? Well, you apply it to the world and to understanding the things around you. And so it's interesting that some, at the end of all of that, I said to myself, I guess what I am is an Austrian Marshallian. And but what I meant by Marshallian was not cost of production and the kind of, you know, and balanced with uh, demand. But I'm an Austrian economist who likes to understand the concrete things in the world around me. So, you know, concrete you know, Marshall's idea that economics is the engine of uh, concrete thought, uh, so more or less he said something like that, uh, and Austrian economics. While some people think of Austrian economics as, you know, just methodology, right. uh, I, I think of it as the proof of the pudding is, can you understand the world? 
Well, it's a return to Hazlitt's economics in one lesson yeah. because that's how that whole book is written, right? It's a basic right. principles and then applied right. to the idea. Um, right. It's interesting. Do you Did you have a sense at that time that besides the macro sort of uh, and money kind of discussions, that the way price theory was taught in a more general sense that it more or less conformed to the Chicago way of doing things at that time than, say, the MIT way of doing it? Or was it already the case that you could see the axiomatic kind of uh, at approach? Chi- at Chicago. Not necessarily at Chicago, but other schools that you might have run into. Well, you were at an elite school. You would have run into other, you know, at the AA meetings or things like that. Well, I did get a sense. I mean, my, my preparation at Fordham, I say, had, uh, was largely learning theories and what the arguments for and against were, okay? It wasn't very applied, really. But nor, neither was it highly mathematical. It was mainly a kind of almost like what today we might call history of thought, only it was applied to the contemporary theories. But, however... I took my microeconomics, both principles and um, an intermediate, for a number of reasons, not at Fordham, but at Columbia. Uh, I took principles of microeconomics at Columbia with C. Lowell Harris and used his textbook. And then I took uh, um, intermediate microeconomics. I've forgotten who the teacher was uh, at Columbia also, using a book called uh, by I think man by the name of Watson called Price Theory and Its Uses. So both of those courses, especially the intermediate one, was kind of a applied price theory. So even at you know so at Columbia I got from those courses kind of an applied sort of and and it was called price theory yeah. and its uses. So it was interesting um, uh, thing. Uh, once I got to Chicago, I, I recognized that. People at other schools were doing it differently. But we, meaning me, my fellow students and the faculty, we had a kind of superiority complex or something. We said, well, okay, they do it differently, but we do it right. Right. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I knew they were doing this all this math stuff there, but we sort of the attitude was, well, how is that going to help you explain why they, you know, they price fifty uh, percent, or they price a two for one rather than fifty percent off each. Uh, that doesn't help you with that right. to know that uh, you know preferences need to be transitive or something like that. Right. So, but by the time I was ready to graduate. I took a look at some of the core exams in, in price theory then, and they were becoming a little bit more formal, but formal a la Becker, uh, not formal a la, you know, MIT formal. So things were changing. The real change that happened, I think, was when Lucas came. But I had already finished all my macro stuff. So I didn't really take any courses with Lucas. But then I also looked at the macro qualifying exam post-Lucas, and things were much more mathematical at that point. Price theory hadn't caught up with the math of uh, the macro, but uh, it was clearly moving that direction. I'm not sure what the situation is today. Um, So now you moved to New York University after finishing at Chicago, and 
and uh, joined the uh, Austrian economics program that was just beginning there and, and have taught there throughout your career. Uh, can you uh, discuss those, uh, that transition and also the excitement, the frustrations uh, over the years and renewed excitement? Well, I, I originally, uh, you know, I had applied, I was applying for jobs in um, uh, the 1976, 77, I believe uh, or was it 75 76 uh yeah i think it was the 75 76 uh, uh season so for a job that would begin in 76 77 yeah okay uh i may be wrong but in any <laughs> event i think that's right so uh i applied a lot of places and i got a, a number of job offers uh one job offer was from uh, VPI, where Buchanan and Tulloch were at the time. Uh, I always thought that one of the reasons I got the job there was because, I, although I did an empirical dissertation and Buchanan wasn't in the audience, uh, Gordon Tulloch was, and I spent part of the time telling the audience my suspicions against the econometric results, including my own. Um, and uh, Gordon Tulloch thought that was so terrific that I basically got the job on the spot. Uh, and I think no other school would, that sort of self-critical approach to econometric results have gotten me a job, probably just the reverse. But in any event, but late in the season, I got a call from Israel Kersner that said, uh, in which he said that if we could raise money to bring you here to NYU for a postdoctoral fellowship, uh, you know, would you accept it or would you be inclined to accept it? Would you treat it seriously, et cetera? And at the time, I think that the, uh, the postdoc that he was thinking about, he said, was one or two years. And I said to him, well, you know, look, a one-year postdoc isn't going to do the trick because I'll arrive and then I'll be on the job market again. And what's the point of that? So I said it would have to be at least two years before I would consider it. So uh, we, you know, he, we said he would think about it, et cetera. Uh, and then he got back to me and offered me a three-year postdoc. So at that point, uh, it seemed pretty attractive. I get to go back to New York and all that stuff. And uh, so I thought a little bit more. And then I said, well, you know what? Uh, three years is long. It's a fairly long period of time. Let me take it. So I took it. And then uh, toward the end of the second year, um, I was offered a uh, assistant professorship, and it was it was done very dictatorially, and I, to my view, very efficiently. <laughs> the chairman came to my office, and he says, it's time to regularize your position. And I said, oh. And he said, so uh, we will, uh, you know, work on making, turning your position into assistant professorship beginning next year. So I said, oh, and I said, what's the salary going to be? And he told me, and it was something you know, ridiculously, by today's standards, low thing. And it turns out that at a time, there were tax, tax advantages to being a postdoctoral fellow. So actually, my after-tax income would have gone down as an assistant professor. And so as myopic as I was then, uh, youthful myopia, 
I thought, well, I'm not going to do this and take a pay cut. Why do I have to be an assistant professor? What's the big deal about being an assistant professor? Not thinking, you know, so much about my future, thinking about the, the after-tax income. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I was persuaded that that would be foolish. Uh, and so it was regularized, and I became an assistant professor. Um, so then at that point, we had a lot of money. Kersner had raised... Oh, maybe four hundred thousand dollars, which in uh, or, or long about nineteen seventy six, seventy seven, uh, he had raised that money plus more. So you know, by today's standards, uh, by today's purchasing power, it was a hell of a lot of money. And so a year after I was hired, uh, Jerry O'Driscoll was hired. He went through a more normal hiring process. Uh, but he was hired, and so now we had me, Jerry O'Driscoll, we had uh, Kersner, of course. We also had Ludwig Lachmann, who had agreed uh, to, uh, back in, I believe it was 75, he began coming for a three-year stint, and then after that came for most of the spring semester each year. So we basically, uh, you know, we basically had Kersner, Jerry, myself, and half of Lachman each year. We had plenty of money uh, to fund graduate students. So at one time, we may have had, uh, you know, six, seven graduate students being funded uh, in the program. Uh, but all along, at the same time, the relationships with the department were tense. Uh, they liked that we were bringing money in. They liked that we were getting uh, publicity, but there was a changeover in chairman from Ned Nadiri, who was the one that, working with Kersner, helped establish the program, to uh, James uh, Ramsey, whose vision for the department was much more mainstream neoclassical department. So for him, our progress and movement uh, to gain professional traction was viewed as partly a threat to that vision. Uh, he didn't want us to go in that direction. He didn't want the department to go in that direction. And so we began to feel a certain, you know, process of retarding or retardation of our progress by the authorities. Uh, things weren't didn't I, go as smoothly as they could have. Can I ask you a quick question on that too? Because my understanding that Jim Ramsey is actually a pretty market-oriented person, too. Yes, he was so very the, market-oriented. So then the dispute is, at that point, fundamentally methodological. Even yes, from it was, the, me it was yeah. methodological. We were viewed as old-fashioned. Um, see, Nadiri's uh, vision for the department was to establish a number of centers uh, focused around a particular uh, famous economist, or at least an economist who could bring in money. Uh, and so what he did was he established a sort of game theory. He, he, he let be established a game theory center uh, based on um, uh, Morgenstern, who was, uh, uh, had retired from Princeton and was teaching at NYU, uh, a, a circle of people around Mocklop, Fritz Mocklop, who similarly had taught at Princeton and was now at NYU, uh, around uh, knowledge economics, uh, a circle of people around Vasily Leontiev, who had been at Harvard 
uh, and now at NYU around input-output. And then Kersner, an Austrian circle you know, around Kersner. Um, and so with those uh, centers, those circles of uh, research, he thought that was the way to promote the department. So it was a very diverse idea of, of a department, a, a promotion of a diverse department uh, methodologically in every which way was his vision. Uh, Ramsey, uh, when he took over, his vision was to promote those aspects that were most in tune with where he thought modern economics was going. His background had been in economy, well, at least partly in econometrics and mathematical economics. Right. So you could see his his bias there was, was pretty clear. And so as the uh, program uh, develops, you had a lot of graduate students who then went out and also, and you had a lot of postdocs. Can you talk about some of the postdocs that came through uh, during that period? They've all gone on to be yeah, we had some Good successful we careers. Had, uh, postdocs or other forms of visiting people. Um, I guess one of our visiting professors uh, was Leland Yeager, uh, who came for, I don't know whether it was a year or a semester, maybe it was a year. Um, and But the postdocs uh, were people like Bruce Caldwell, who was writing his book Beyond Positivism at the time. Uh, and we discussed many of those ideas. Uh, we had another postdoc was uh, Uskali Maki, who is a famous methodologist now at Erasmus uh, University. Uh, his interest in Austrian economics uh, was uh, kind of on the margins, I think, although he obviously was attracted to the philosophical interests uh, that Austrians had and to this idea of essentialism, right. which comes from Menger and Kersner more than um, others. Um, and so he was there for a number uh, for a year or so. Uh, we also had Roger Garrison actually was there. I don't know whether he was a, a postdoc or a visiting professor at the time. Um, and, uh, well, Roger hated New York, uh, so I, uh, the main thing I remember about Roger being there, and the same thing about Leland Yeager, was that they both didn't like New York, and they were quite disoriented by the whole place. Um, but nevertheless, they were, uh, uh, Roger, especially Roger, I think, um, was very uh, interested in uh, Austrian macroeconomics, and uh, so it was very good to have him around. Uh, Larry White was a postdoc before he became an assistant professor. Uh, and so he, you know, he was there uh, for a period of time. Uh, I've, I've actually forgotten, were you a postdoc before you were no, assistant? No, you you just, came yeah. in as assistant but professor. I, I, I was laughing when you were talking about Garrison because when Roger found out that I taken had the offer to be an assistant professor there, he contacted me and told me that Kersner asked him when he was a post, a po I think he was a postdoc there, but asked him uh, how they could improve their program, and he said to Kersner, "Make it non-residential." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I remember, you know, that. But for a, a kid from New Jersey like me, going to NYU was like a dream come true. So I didn't agree with him on the uh, the non-residential aspect. Uh, I want to go back a little bit and just ask you a question because I think it's an interesting contrast because uh, Ludwig Lachman who was a regular, he often contrasted 
the Austrians with what he called the Neo-Ricardians or, uh, you know, and to a large extent, those were Chicago kind of people. And as someone who had just come out of the Chicago tradition and then bumping intellectual heads with Lachman, uh, I, I, I guess I'm trying to recreate those initial reactions that you might have had to hearing Lachman's ideas. Because uh, I came to, you know, these ideas after you had already been influenced to some extent by Lachman. So I was wondering about that initial class, if there was one or how you viewed that. Well, I have to say, uh, initially, uh, Lachman was um, seen to be coming from a place that I wasn't very familiar with. Um, and uh, the idea that the Chicago school was a kind of... Uh, neo-Ricardian uh, school um, took me a while to understand what he was meaning. I mean, I, I, I came away thinking the Chicago school was, at least in microeconomics, uh, kind of a Marshallian school. And, uh, you know, the, the, the idea was that Marshall took Ricardo and he kind of infused it with some of the lessons of the marginal revolution. So Marshall was no pure Ricardian. Right. Uh, Marshall was some sort of hybrid. Uh, and that is what I, you know, thought of the Chicago school. Uh, Lachman was obviously thinking uh, that Marshall's uh, additions or, or adjustments to Ricardo were not enough and that uh, it was still a highly sort of objectivist uh, right. uh, school because uh, Lachman was thinking much more about uh, the furtherance of subjectivism into the area of expectations and things of that sort. Um, and But he did open the door to a lot of uh, issues and controversies that I wasn't really familiar with. I wasn't really even familiar with the Cambridge uh, controversies on capital. Uh, because it never was mentioned at Chicago uh, that there were controversies about capital. Um, we, we didn't really talk much about capital except to say that, uh, you know, you needed finance capital for investment and yeah. uh, you needed machines. <laughs> so, uh, you know, capital wasn't... Uh, and, you know, they may have had something there because... Capital is a very difficult uh, issue uh, to discuss. But nevertheless, you know, she presented all of that. And little by little, I realized that there was a lot to what he was saying. Uh, but it wasn't a, you know, a quick uh, process. I mean, there was a certain resistance on my part because, you know, here comes this strange guy who's trying to undo what I had spent all those years to learn. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And even the version of Austrian economics that I had learned, which was, uh, you know, a lot of it came from, from, from Rothbard at that, my early stage. Right. And Rothbard is not the most, uh, you know, he, 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 if, if you cannot say that there's such a thing as uh, a more equilibrium, oriented Austrian, it certainly is Rothbard. He's your Austrian Marshallian, as you yeah, said before. Yeah, something like yeah. that. You know, he yeah. wasn't Austrian the way Lachman was Austrian, right. or even the way Hayek became Austrian. Yeah. No, it's, a, it's fascinating. I want to turn to your books 
So I want to talk about your recent book that you're working on right now. But before that, oh, uh, I, one thing: Do you want to talk about the how the program blew up, sort of? At NYU? No, we don't have to talk about that because I, I, I'm going to ask you more about Austrian economics right, in general okay. and the role right. that you maybe you can relate to that as you talk about the evolution of the economics of time and ignorance All right. and the uh, the role that that played okay. um, because. Uh, you know, that began much earlier with a what what is Austrian or economics kind of challenge that was put to you. And and then and then it evolves into this book that met with tremendous excitement in the when it was first published. And then it has a long history afterwards. Um, and so I, I just was wondering if you could maybe talk about your experience in writing the book and dealing with the, the controversies associated with the book and the All developments right. afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're right. It began with uh, just running, wanting to write an essay uh, for uh, the Journal of Economic Literature, uh, just answering the question, what is Austrian economics? And the reason that we thought it was necessary to do that, now this was along around when the original conception of such an essay came to our mind, Jerry in mind, uh, was really around 19, say, 81 or something like that, 82. Um, exact dates I may have slightly wrong. but um, And the reason it came to our minds was because there seemed to be sort of a bit of an uncertainty. People would ask sometimes, you know, how, how do you differ from Chicago economics? Okay, so if they got the sense of how we differed from Chicago economics, then they might say, well, how do you differ from mainstream or you know, the rest of the mainstream economics? And so in a sense, we were always answering the question about, well, we're not this, we're not that, you know, but what is the essence, what, if you want to use that word, what is the core, what are the core ideas of Austrian economics? Now, today it may seem simple to answer that question, but at that time, uh, it, it really wasn't so simple. Uh, there was a lot going on, in, uh, uh, you know, in in the presentation of Austrian economics, uh, and some degree by people who were not fully cognizant of what they were writing, or at least not familiar enough with the tradition. So sometimes we had ar uh, articles that would appear. I'm not mentioning names that didn't quite differentiate Austrian economics from say, some more standard uh, approach, uh, some either Marshallian or even Patinkin or something. You know, things were a little bit confused. So there seemed to be some need to just sort of set it out. And Kersner had written Competition and Entrepreneurship, but that was just one area. But what about the rest of it? You know, how does it all fit together? So we thought about uh, doing that. Jerry and I, and we presented, or he, he, we wrote a paper called What is Austrian Economics? He presented it at the, uh, the meetings, uh, the AEA meetings in, I believe it was in Denver uh, at the time. Uh, and uh, at that meeting, uh, we tell some of the story, actually, in the most recent edition of, uh, of the book called Austrian Economics Reexamined. But uh, the publisher of, uh, from um, Basil Blackwell, uh, an editor from Basil Blackwell was there, and he thought it would make a good book. 
and, and sent a letter uh, asking if we were willing to turn it into a book. And so then we, we decided to do that. So in the research of the book, you know, we're trying to sort of get down to what are the essential features? Uh, what is it all about at some deep level? And then big things begin to look a little bit different than they looked before. It wasn't just a matter, as I thought, oh, I've been studying Austrian economics for, you know, so many years, and Jerry, so we're just going to write down what we always thought. <laughs> it turns out when you think about uh, the fundamentals, sometimes you, you say, well, it's not quite that. Uh, maybe it's this. And, and your, your view of, the, of what the, the foundations are begins to evolve, begins to change, especially since both of us were educated at a time much more recent than the old Austrians. So now what does, you know, what does all this stuff mean in the world of the, of the 1980s, right? It doesn't mean the same thing uh, necessarily as it meant in 1925 or, or in 1890 or something like that. And that's where the trouble began in a sense. Uh, the trouble in the sense of getting some of the uh, others who perhaps were, you know, who were older than we were, uh, but who had pretty much accepted the kind of Austrian economics that perhaps was kind of finished by certainly by the you know, end of the socialist calculation debate, uh, that they had accepted a view of Austrian economics as sort of complete as of that date. And that didn't quite make sense to us in the world in which we were living. Right. Uh, and so in the effort to restate, things began to look a little differently and the foundations began to look different. Uh, and that that effort to then present those foundations uh, seemed controversial uh, and, and highly irregular to many people. Uh, and we got a lot of pushback there. But you also generated a lot of excitement as well. I mean, there's a lot of young people who uh, were very excited. The program here at George Mason, uh, who was one of your students, Don Lavoie, and another one of your students, Rich Fink, you know, had moved down here and Jack High, I guess, had been a visiting student at NYU at an earlier time, though he got his Ph.D. from uh, um, uh, UCLA, and Karen Vaughn, who had been back. They, they started this program down here, and, of course, the program here benefited from the fact that Buchanan and Tulloch had moved. Uh, we're doing the Buchanan archives right now, and we just came across some correspondence that Buchanan had with Moses Abramowitz about your what should uh, what is Austrian economics paper for the JEL and him advocating that they should be, you know, oh, working know with you and O'Driscoll to get that paper. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. So we just learned that. That's yeah, kind of interesting. Nice. Um, but uh, and so there kind of became a legitimacy about Austrian economics here and then a de uh, decided excitement about wanting to uh, go forward, you know, as Buchanan always liked to say, you know, two things, dare to be different and onward and upward, uh, never backward looking, always yeah, onward. And yeah, I think yeah. the economics of time and ignorance received that kind of reception, you know, here uh, and, and opened up those ideas about the marrying of uh, law and economics, public choice, Austrian economics, well, new institutionalism, that kind of stuff. And yeah, so there was a kind of a uh, a general excitement about kind of new ideas right. 
at that time, yeah. See, it, it, uh, the book, in some way, came out at the right time um, because the mixture, some people might say mongrelization, but the, <laughs> the mixture of ideas was going to happen anyway. And the reason it was going to happen anyway is because, first of all, Lachman's influence. I mean, Lachman had a tremendous influence, largely because, uh, I think, of his obvious intelligence, scholarship, and, uh, you know, relentless arguing his point. But also, when you think about it, I was educated at Chicago. So I'm getting some, you know, Marshallian heresies are coming into my head. Uh, Jerry was educated at UCLA, getting this Leyenhoofed, uh, Alshian uh, perspective in his head. Then, when the program begins at George Mason, you've got uh, Buchanan down here uh, putting public choice ideas in, in the people who were uh, you know, predisposed to Austrian economics down here. Uh, then you get Lavoy, who partly by influenced by Lachman, but also on his own, coming up with things from Gadamer and others, and those things are getting mixed right. in. Uh, and then I have to say, uh, you know, jumping ahead, I think that you uh, 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 performed an important function with your uh, idea about uh, empirical case studies and thick explanations. Uh, because one of the problems that Austrians had, uh, you know, for a long time was this idea that we didn't believe in empirical research. Yeah. And the problem was that empirical research was identified with uh, sort of traditional econometric research, which, you know, very kind of formalistic explanations. Uh, but there is empirical research that's Every bit is empirical, but is not that. Right. And I think that was an important uh, uh, yeah. gap to, to fill. So all of these things, you know, the law and economics stuff, all yeah. kind of mixing together, uh, I think was alarming to some older or more conservative, let's call them that, more conservative Austrians. You know, all these ideas mixing together the purity of the Austrian framework. But I think that was necessary. Uh, if you think... If, you know, just, I mean, obviously the listeners to this don't know exactly what we just have been hearing here at this conference. But I was just looking at the, uh, listening to Koppel's speech and, and also looking at the program, that this is a very different advanced Austrian seminar than the ones we used to have at Fee and and the ones that we had prior to that. Uh, oh, we had like with, uh, Denver. Those were more, here's the received wisdom advanced Austrian economics seminar. Here, it looks like a living tradition. You know, new stuff is coming in. Yeah. You know, Koppel's working with a, a, a biologist. Uh, well, what, since when do Austrians work with biologists? I, um, it's funny that you mentioned that. Bruce Caldwell in his talk mentioned about how he went to the Austrian seminar in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, many years ago, I used to have all the, the syllabuses from all the different Austrian yeah. seminars. There was, in Colorado, there were eight lectures, eight lectures on Austrian capital theory. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Garrison, 
God bless Garrison <laughs> for putting himself through all that. Eight, but, eight yeah. lectures, and it's a totally different and world. And I remember, yeah. I remember the kinds of issues we used to discuss, which seemed so important at the time. And now we could say, well, what the hell are we, what are we doing? Is, uh, you know, for example, uh, time preference or productivity and the yeah. rate of interest. On and on and on about that. And slight nuances uh, making all the difference in the world. And, you know, maybe that's important, but it's certainly not as important as a living research program. Right. And, you know, cost of and then, then the, the analogous one, cost of production versus demand. Right. That's analogous to time preference and productivity. Yeah. So all of those things, talking about that. Yeah. I remember, I, you go back even earlier, the action axiom, yeah. empirical or a priori. Uh, so we've come a long way. I will say, I'll put a plug in for the old days. So I remember when I went to Milwaukee, that's where I went to the Austrian seminar. Yeah. And I was just elated to sit there. The lecturers at that were Kersner, yourself, uh, Jerry, and Roger. And uh, and um, it was just, uh, Roger Koppel was actually one of my fellows at that uh, that uh, conference it was actually the before i started graduate school but after i had finished undergraduate school and i just thought i was in heaven yeah. having those kind of discussions but keep in mind i spent most of my senior year debating with a, a, a fellow undergraduate who was also interested in Austrian economics who went on to become a theologian about the nature of the action axiom for yeah, 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 you know, yeah. years and and, uh, and whatnot. Um, so I, I, I appreciate the point about the living, uh, but I think those older debates also can be very fun and, okay. and useful. Um, let's uh, talk about your recent research and in particular what your, your book is that you're doing and also what you're going to be talking about. Um, here, um, uh, you have um, always been a very philosophically sophisticated thinker about economic theory. Um, one of my favorite essays of yours is on the causal genetic moment in economics, which I think is a very uh, powerful way in which we think about what the task is that we're trying to do in economics. Not everyone else you know, buys that because they don't understand the sort of philosophical issues at stake. But in recent years, there's been a move challenging the basic conception of rationality. You've been working on that and its relationship in theory, but also in application in law and economics um, and whatnot. And, and uh, you know, but yet at the same time, you were someone who in the economics of time and ignorance actually opened up the concept of individual choosing and the agony of choice in a way that seems to touch on some of the themes that behavioralists want to talk about. But maybe you could talk about that and and, uh, and the book and, and what you're hoping to achieve yeah. in that. Okay. Uh, first of all, I have to say that I think the uh, emergence of behavioral economics and of um, so-called new paternalism uh, is has presented many, many opportunities uh, for Austrians as well as other types of economists uh, because there's nothing so fundamental to modern economics as the, as the concept of rationality. And I think that what we're witnessing uh, among behavioral economists is two approaches. Uh, now, I'm talking about, you know, what most people would recognize as behavioral economics. But there still are two approaches. 
One is the idea which is being promoted by people like uh, List and even Leibson and, and some others, uh, and, and many in my de own department. As behavioral economics, it's an amendment to neoclassical economics. And that we should proceed uh, in a sense, in a way that's very similar to how we proceed with uh, standard economics. Uh, and that uh, I think uh, List and Leibson in, in an article called Behavioral Economics for uh, Principles of Behavioral Economics um, say that behavior, uh, standard economics, uh, let's say you're in Chicago and you want to get to uh, Fenway Park in Boston. Uh, standard economics will get you to Boston. But behavioral economics will get you to Fenway Park. Okay, so it's a it's a refinement. It's right. a it's a uh, improvement on what neoclassical economics or standard economics is. And and standard economics is a lot. It gets you to Boston from Chicago. That's a big trip. But if you really want to get good at this, you're going to have to adopt behavioral economics to get you really to your goal. All right, so there are efforts on the part of behavioral economists to say, well, we have to just uh, modify the standard uh, neoclassical axioms to allow for like uh, the frame in which a decision is made might affect the, uh, the choice that people make. So we have to modify standard economics. But there are others who are more outside the mainstream uh, who think that this is a revolution in economics. This means that uh, really economics needs to be rethought in some fundamental way. Uh, and uh, I think that Austrians could occupy a sort of a position there that may be somewhere, I hate to have this middle ground business again, but <laughs> somewhere a middle ground between saying it's an amendment and everything has to be overturned. Um, and I think the key is that the Austrian concept of rationality never was as specific or narrow as the neoclassical model, so that Austrians should be open to broader conceptions of rationality. And that's what I hope that the, my, the book that I'm doing will, will emphasize and will convince people of, is that it's not that, ration, it's not that rationality has been challenged. It's that a very specific and narrow concept of rationality has been challenged and that what we need to do is broaden our view of what rationality is and, and, and look at it in a much more um, pragmatic way. Uh, is it a good adaptation? You know, are people thinking and doing in a way that's a good adaptation to their specific circumstances? Uh, and I think the work of uh, Gigarenza is, is very much in that direction and uh, is, a, is a good kind of behavioral economics, which can, in a way, supplement Austrian economics uh, in, a, in a productive way. So maybe rather than Austrian Marshallian, you've now evolved into an Austrian behavioralist. Uh, or a, at least a, an Austrian e e ecological rationalityist, yeah. yeah. <laughs> something like that. Well, thank you very much, Mario. All right, thank best you. of luck with you and the book and the projects. That's great. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. 
To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.